Let's consider Paul's prayer, Ephesians chapter 3. And this is how an apostle prays for the church. And so this is important for us to learn how to pray and then to see what was important to Paul that should be important to us. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think. And even that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, something we don't humanly have the ability to grasp. But you are able by your Spirit to take these words of Scripture and to win our hearts, our affection. Pray that you would speak to us, open wide our hearts, help us to get it, to know your love, that we are members of your body. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture for, for a few reasons. There isn't any commands in this passage, so this passage isn't telling you what to do. This is not a prayer that you would love God. It's a prayer that you would be utterly captivated by God's love for you because that's more important. And until we get that, we won't know what to do. We won't know how to do it. We won't do it. We got to get the big rock in first. And so what Paul's praying is that we would be utterly captivated by God's love. This prayer has two central petitions and then a grand finale. The first petition, which is worded in two different ways, is in verses 16 to 18, and Paul is praying. It's a prayer for inner strength through God's Spirit. So it's a prayer for strength. And then the second is a prayer for knowledge. Verse 19a, this love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. So it's something that we want to grasp intellectually, but we want to to go deeper down to our hearts. And the last ascending prayer is to be filled with all the fullness of God. And we won't be filled with the fullness of God till we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we won't know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge unless God by his spirit gives us the strength and the ability to grasp it. Okay, so at first blush, this is, is um, it may be a little hard to take in because you kind of think to yourself, well, you either have it or you don't. And if you have Christ, then why would you need to pray for more grasping or comprehending his love? Because Paul's praying to Christians for the Christian church here that they would understand more of his love and his grace. 
Is he praying for some type of second experience? And I think what Paul is praying is that what is objectively true, union with Christ, would subjectively become such a reality that it would explode in our hearts and that it would transform our looking at life, our circumstances, our way of life. And so Paul is praying this way. And I think in experience, we kind of get this. I'll give you a couple illustrations. You know, if I, if I handed you a half a gallon of unopened orange juice, if I handed that to you, Tom, what would you do before you drank a cup of orange juice? What would you do with that half gallon of orange juice if it hadn't been opened? Okay, you'd open it. But you'd first shake it up. Thank you, Scott. You shake it up because the contents tend to go down to the bottom, Right? It's okay, I'll come back to you. We'll, give you. we'll give you another chance here, Tom. If I make a glass of chocolate milk and I squirt that nice Hershey syrup down in there, all right, Tom, stick with me because I'm coming back to you. And I hand you that milk and I've just squirted the Hershey's, what would you do before you drank it? You got some help from your daughter there. I saw that there. <laughs> All right, you stir it up. Now, are you getting more of the contents of that orange juice before it was, it's all, everything's still there, and the same with that Hershey's syrup, but now it's being appropriate. It's being stirred up, and so it's permeating the whole, all the milk now is full of chocolate and doesn't all just sink to the bottom. And Francis Schaeffer used to talk about our big problem in the Christian life is this failing to possess our possessions. And what he meant by that was we needed a fresh application of the blood of Christ, a fresh application of applying just as you came to the cross initially. You knew your need that we continue to do that on a regular daily basis. And so, so much of the Christian life is forgetting what we have in Christ. And so, you know, we, we've been talking about uh, the Sunday school class with John Bunyan. You know, you have Doubting Castle and, and, you know, Christian is stuck in Doubting Castle, but Christian doesn't realize he has the key. He's just not using the key. Oh, I've got this key. And I heard a funny sermon this week, maybe a couple of you heard it from Tony Evans. I, I like his his uh, sermons, and he was talking about being stuck on an elevator. And he gets stuck on this elevator between floors. It's full of people. And what do you think happened when that elevator stopped? He said, everybody started screaming and hollering and freaking out. And they're, you know, and then he just says, hold on. And he picks up the phone. And immediately there's somebody there and they say, oh, help is on the way and they're sending somebody. You don't need to do all the crying and all the screaming because nobody can hear all that. You have the phone, pick up the phone, use the phone. And so the idea is that it was all right there in front of him, he just had to apply it. And so for us as believers, we have God's love in our hearts. We have this idea, I mean, we, we talk about, uh, asking Christ into your heart. And a lot of people rail on that expression because where is any biblical proof of that in the Bible? Well, the only reference you have in the Bible is right here. And it does say that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so there is this certain biblical truth and idea that Christ is in our hearts. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. 
And, but it's easy for us to forget God's love, particularly in the hard times. We were looking at the life of Joseph this morning in our Sunday school class, and in Genesis 37, the first chapter of his life, and he, there is not one mention of God in the whole chapter. And yet God's fingerprints are all over it, but it's just awful things are happening to Joseph. In one chapter, he's sold twice. He's sold by his brothers. They get to 20 shekels of silver, and off he goes to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, they sell Joseph to Potiphar, to, and, and now he's in the, in the prison. Um, he's in charge of this, and, but he's sold twice in one chapter. His life is going downhill when he's had these dreams that, hey, everybody's going to be bowing down to me, and it's not looking good. And it's easy to forget God in the hard times, kind of like what Jeremiah was wrestling with in Lamentations 3, and he had to recall or remember God's love. And there's only two verses that we remember in Lamentations 3. But here's the rest of the story. He says, I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Is that the part of... Lamentations 3 that you remember? It's this part. But this I call to mind. And literally, it's the Hebrew word shuv, which means repent. Literally, turn my heart. He has this come to Jesus moment. I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. A lot happening in 10 verses of a change of perspective when he recalls God's great love and it grips his heart afresh. Just want to focus this morning on one particular word in Ephesians 3.18. And so in Ephesians 3.18, Paul is praying that you may have the strength or may be able to fully grasp um, or fully able to comprehend. And that's the word I want to focus on. Strength to comprehend with all the saints. So keep in mind, this is a corporate prayer and it's something that often happens in a corporate setting. When God grips you with his great love, and you might all of a sudden get it, it's often in the community context. That we would, this is idea that the community, he's praying for the church in Ephesus, they would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, this one word here, comprehend, uh, is an interesting word because on the one hand, we can't fully comprehend God. And if and a God fully comprehended is an idol. If you can fully comprehend God, well, then it's an idol that you're worshiping because that's not God. John Calvin put it like this. He says, we can apprehend God, but we can never fully comprehend. And so we, we're not in a sea of skepticism. We can understand because we're made in his image and, and he has made himself <clears throat> known to us through his word. But this is going beyond here, a head knowledge. This is an intellectual knowledge that's sunk down and it grabs the heart and it's capturing the heart. You're taken over, you're won over. 
you say things like, how, how have I always missed this? And so I want you to see how this word is used in the other places in the New Testament. It's used a couple other, several other times. But here are four instances that I thought would be focused on this morning. This idea of comprehend. How do we understand this love of God? Well, in Mark 9, 18, we are told about a demon-possessed boy. And it says, whenever it seizes him... Same word, comprehend, it's catalambano in the Greek. When it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, cast it out. They're not able. So here, a demon-possessed person is now catalambano. He is taken over by this demon. And Paul's praying that you be taken over by the love of God, just like that, okay? Or in John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Same word, catalambano. Okay, that's a little different than comprehend, isn't it? And then in John 8, 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So that's the same word, catalambano. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. Leave that slide up there for a minute, Calvin. It says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. Okay, so do you see how the word is used? It's this idea of being seized, overcome, caught, and surprised. And so I'm reminded of a hymn, a great hymn by William Cowper. And he wrote, sometimes a light surprises the child of God who sings. It's the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it that it may. Do we get this love of Christ? Is the light surprising you? We are members of his body. Let's just say Ephesians 5.30. Let's memorize a verse this morning. Because we are members of his body. Let's say that. Because we are members of his body. Ephesians 5.30. Because we are members of his body. Think about that. He nourishes and cherishes you this morning by his word and by communion because we are members of his body. In the context of marriage, Paul is saying, here's the the real marriage. I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's gonna sound like a mystery to you, but because you're members of his body, you're members of his body, his body. He's taken you to himself. The two become one flesh. Of his flesh and of his bones is what some of the other translations add in. You are now knitted to Christ. We are so attached to him, he would never let us go. How do I know God loves us? How do I know God loves me? Because we are members of his body. What if we really got that? What if we really got that this morning? I think a light would surprise I think a new season would lift. I think clouds would lift. The rain would go. The shine would come. We would be enraptured with the love of God because we are members of his body. Unbelievable. That's what Paul's saying. He wants us to get it, and that's what he's praying for. The whole book of Ephesians is a love letter to the church. It starts with love, it ends with love. 
Spurgeon had a famous sermon. It was entitled, Prodigal Love for the Prodigal Son. I encourage you to read it. It's online, easy to read, and I think it's what inspired Tim Keller's title to Prodigal God book. There's nothing new under the sun. Spurgeon says about the father in 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 the sermon, he says this, I do not know that the prodigal saw his father, but the father saw him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. I do not suppose that the prodigal traveled very fast. I should imagine that he came very slowly, with heavy heart and downcast eye, with many a sob and many a sigh. He was resolved to come, yet he was half afraid. But, when, but we read that his father ran. Slow are the st- steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run when we can scarcely limp, and if we're limping towards him, he'll run towards us. These kisses were given in a hurry. The story is narrated in a way that almost makes us realize that such was the case, that in a sense of haste, in the very wording of it, his father ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and kissed him eagerly. He did not delay for a moment, for he was out of breath, but he was not out of love. He fell on his neck and kissed him much. Is that how you think of the love of God? That's how Jesus thinks of the love of God. And he wants us to understand that as sinners, we may smell like a pig this morning. And here the father is running to his son and restoring him quick, quick. Put a robe on him. Kill the fatted calf. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And as Spurgeon's reflecting on the love of the father, Sometimes a light surprises. And he said this, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we could not endure it any longer. If the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess of rapture or happiness. It's exactly how D.L. Moody describes an experience he had with the Lord. D.L. Moody, who was a prominent Chicago minister, evangelist, 19th century, he wrote one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. You see, it's not as though Moody wasn't a Christian before. He was in Christ. But there's a moment where the objective truth of being united to Christ becomes a sudden explosion of joy. Have you ever had that kind of explosion where your heart just wells up with the reality? Tim Keller tells a story of a revival service where a guy got up and said, And he makes it clear twice that this is a true story. He says, I'm having an experience of God's glory. And the wife got up and said, every year he gets an experience of God's glory and he's no better a husband. True story. And the minister said, then that's not an experience of God's glory. You're having an emotional experience. Big difference. You see, the Puritans used to say, the first people, the first to know that God has changed your heart will be your animals. What they meant by that 
was the horse isn't going to be kicked, and neither are the animals. You'll start treating them better. And of course, you're going to treat your sibling and spouse better. Jonathan Edwards said he wanted to, in his preaching to raise the affections as high as possible so as the, long as the affections were raised by truth. So we're not just talking about some emotional experience, but it's really grasping and getting his love for us. So look again at, at Ephesians 3. What's Paul praying for? He's praying for strength to take in God's love for you, to comprehend this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. D.A. Carson reflecting on these verses, and this is in your bulletin as well. He says, this cannot be merely an intellectual exercise. Paul's not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He's asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Doubtless, that includes the intellectual reflection, but it cannot be reduced to that alone. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why is this so important to Paul? You know, John Stott said one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about that which concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters that we do not include in our prayers. So we learn a lot by seeing what Paul prays for. It's of utmost importance. It shows what's on his heart. It shows you what he believes. It shows you what is going to bring the most good to us, the most good to the church, and the most glory to God. And so Paul, for Paul, this is it. He's praying that we would be able to take in God's love for us. You see, you notice that Paul doesn't say that we would be rooted and grounded in the sovereignty of God. He doesn't pray that we'd be rooted and grounded in the fear of God. He doesn't pray that we'd be rooted and grounded in holiness, in obedience, in loyalty. He doesn't do any of that. That we'd be rooted and grounded in love. That we would get that. That's what he's praying for. Thomas Chalmers. We've got a couple of things weaving in of church history and a couple of the famous sermons in, in history. The one's by Spurgeon. Need to read it. This one's by Thomas Chalmers, also on the internet. Need to read it. He had a, a famous sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he said this. I'll give you three quotes. He said, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have a something to lay hold of and which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The heart must have something to cling to. So everybody here has a hungry heart, as Bruce Springsteen would say. Let me translate, okay? Everybody's got a hungry heart. So the question is, where's your hungry heart looking this morning? And he's saying the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. The only way to dispossess it, okay, this is of the heart clinging to idols, the only way to dispossess it, of, dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You see, Paul's praying that we be rooted and grounded in love. 
that we would be so rooted and grounded in this love that this love begins to produce new fruit. And as the springtime happens, this new fruit, as it starts to come out on the leaves of the trees, all of a sudden these oak trees around my house, it starts shedding these dead fall branches that are still stuck up there, these leaves. But the new growth will push it out and they'll fall to the ground. And I have to do a little last raking in the spring. Why is that? Because there's a new something that's pushing, expulsing out something old. And we got some old dead stuff that needs to be expulsed out of our hearts. And what's going to do it? That we would be rooted and grounded in love. And if we get the rooted and grounded in love, it's going to expulse these other things. So think about this epistle for a moment of what Paul is praying about. He wants to remind us this book is a love letter. It begins with a salutation. It's a blessing to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I can still remember in South Africa, the first time I ever heard a salutation where the preacher got up and grace to you and peace from God our Father. And it was like God himself had just, and he did, because he speaks every time, but it became real. It was like, that was for me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing continues. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's love. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Then we move to chapter 2. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. I want you to contrast that for a minute. We drink in that so much, you know, you guys can, you, you just get to the point where it's like, oh yeah, isn't that great? Does anybody, does any other religion say these kind of things? I mean, here's, here's Muhammad. Twice Muhammad says in the Quran, he's not sure what's going to happen when he dies. I mean, this is the leader. And he says, by Allah, though I am the apostle of Allah, yet I do not know what the Allah will do to me. And then he says, say I'm not an innovation among the messengers, and I know not what shall be done with me or with you. I only follow what is revealed to me, and I'm a clear warner. Does that sound like love to you? I mean, here's the leader of the movement, and he doesn't even know if he's going to make it, much less you. Is that what Paul's saying? Is that what Paul, the, the, the apostle, says to his people? 
He says grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's totally the opposite. You see, and then he writes in chapter 5 that Christ loved the church, gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And notice he's the one going to do the presenting. He's the one making us holy. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Because we are members of his body. That's like unbelievable news. We're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus didn't have his mother. I have a mother, but he left his father so the two could become one flesh. He took humanity to himself, was born of a virgin, and the two now have become one flesh, and he brings us into his flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When we look at Ephesians 5, we just look at marriage, and we forget the beauty of what's going on here. Has the objective truth of union with Christ become a subjective explosion of joy in your heart that is bringing this new foliage of spring, pushing out dead leaves of winter out of the tree of your heart? Jonathan Edwards, here's the last classic sermon. He has a sermon entitled The Divine and Supernatural Light, and it's based on Peter's confession. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And here's the quote. Jonathan Edwards says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A former, a man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. There's a wide difference between mere speculative, rational judging anything to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. The former rests only in the head. Speculation only is concerned in it, but the heart is concerned in the latter. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and the amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension it is implied in a person's being hardly sensible of the loveliness of a thing that the idea of it sweet is sweet and pleasant to his soul, which is far different from having a rational opinion that it's excellent. Have you tasted the honey? Last illustration from another Puritan. This is from Thomas Goodwin. He's a 17th century Puritan pastor. And he wrote that, that one day, 
He saw a father and son walking along the street. And by the way, I'm getting a lot of this from Tim Keller's book on prayer. He has a whole chapter on this verse. So if you want to follow up on some of these things, he has a whole chapter on this and, and his book on prayer. But, and that's where I get this one from. He, so he, he talks about Th- Thomas Goodwin, and, he, and one day he saw a father and a son walking down the street. And suddenly the son swept the son The father swept the son up into his arm and hugged him and kissed him and told the boy that he loved him, and after a minute, he put the boy back down. And so the question is, was the little boy more of a son in his father's arms than he was when the before the father lifted him up and kissed him and hugged him and put him back down again? Was he any more of a son? No. But then he says this. Objectively and legally, there was no difference, but subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. Let me ask you this. When the prodigal came home, was he any less of a son? How did he feel as he's coming home? He feels terrible. And he knows he's full of shame. He's full of remorse. He's got a confession that he's worked up, and he's saying, just make me a hired servant. I'm not worthy to be a son any longer. I just, I'm not even worthy of that. And the father runs to him, puts his arms around him, and kisses him. Fathers didn't run in that culture, but this father runs to his son to restore the dignity, to restore the honor, and he forgave his sin, loved him. And Keller puts it like this. When the Holy Spirit comes down on you in fullness, you can sense your Father's arms beneath you. It's an assurance of who you are. The Spirit enables you to say to yourself, if someone as all-powerful as that loves me like this, delights in me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, says he will never let me go, and is going to glorify me and make me perfect and take everything bad out of my life, if all that is true... Why am I worried about anything? At a minimum, this means joy and a lack of fear and self-consciousness. This is good news. And so let's ask, the, let's pray this prayer for ourselves and for each other as we come to the table. Let's ask God, show me the love of Christ. Open my heart. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us a love letter. Thank you for your word. You've given us a love token that we would taste and see that you're good. Meet us now at your table. Thank you that you've promised to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.